Welcome to Mosaic, as you have already been told. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're a part of it. Give you a second. I moved that and it made a noise. It was like that thing made the noise, you know? That's a correlation, not causation there. For those of you that keep track of those things at home and know the differences. Brought the handheld up in case uh, we get the crazy clickety-clack from last week. All right. We are in week two of a series we're doing for five weeks through this uh, fall, into fall, I guess you could say. We did our vision series. Now we're doing this to lead us up into Advent. Last week, we talked about desire. And as we talked about desire, uh, I just want to recap some of it because this series, more than our normal series, will build off of it off of itself. So a uh, shocker here, we have the expectation that if you're around and a part of Mosaic that like you'd be here every Sunday because like we're, we're uh, planning this and organizing it in such a way that we'll see each Sunday kind of like connect to one another. So I want to spend a little bit of time recapping last week because I think it'll be helpful. We talked about how desire in each human being begins and ends with God. That we're a people created with desire by a God who desires us. As such, right, we are created with a desire for a God who desires us. Like this is the essence of humanity. This is core to being human. It's to have this desire and this longing to be connected to someone. To be connected and, and to be in relationship and to experience love, a sacrificial communal kind of love, and to give it. To know and to, to be acquainted with someone and others and to be known and acquainted. It's God's desire for us, his longing to share and his love and his relationship in the Godhead, this perfect community that existed within the Trinity. He did not need us. He did not require us. He was not insufficient or inadequate without us. And today, God does not need us. He does not need us to meet him. He does not need us to fulfill something in him. He is not short of what he is supposed to be without us. He desires and longs for us, each and every one of us in this room, to be in relationship with us. Created in such a way that we are invoked by that desire. Every human being, I think, on planet Earth has a desire that is invoked and that is uh, latent within them or acknowledged within them that is given to them by the desire that God has for them. Created to share in this, to see and to be seen, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And every human being experiences this from birth. This was Kurt Thompson I quoted last week, and I'll say it again this week because I think it's profound. Every child, every baby is born looking for someone looking for them. And the more we study attachment theory and attunement and all these things, the more we begin to understand, and medically and psychologically and emotionally and all of this, we begin to understand how important it is that there's that connection between parent and child immediately. If you've gone through this and you know in contact and all of this and, and there's these moments where it's like the, the, and feeding the child and, and not being distracted and making that eye contact and seeing them in a moment of need and, and fulfillment and safety and security, there, there's this thing in all of humanity that we long to be seen and we long to see others. We are looking for someone looking for us. And as we talked about last week, is that therein lies a problem. Something arises within it that derails this whole thing of being human. And we've all experienced it. If in each and every one of us is desire, 
a longing for love, a longing for uh, being known or seen, being connected, being in relationship. The majority of us at different times and throughout our lives in different moments, and some of us for longer periods, some of us for shorter periods, and, and we never really get past this, we end up spending a lot of our time here at being human looking for love in all the wrong places. We know this. We're acquainted with it. Nobody's like, wait, what? No way. Everybody's like, yeah, it's probably true. We do it relationally. We do it with friendships, romantic interest. We do it in, in all sorts of Look for love in two Oreos when my boys lay down for rest, right? Like, I'm just like, oh, I need this, like, action, this fulfillment, because I, like, it's been a difficult day, and we look for it in the wrong places. All sorts of other ways. Netflix, cell phones, video games, alcohol, all things that I love and enjoy, but yet we use them to satiate and to, to fill something that's empty or aching or hot in us. We look for it in being extra social. We look for it in being introverted. There's this way in which we have a, a thing that's in us that aches, that longs, that yearns, that desires. And we attempt to continually fill it with something that cannot feel, fill that void. We look for love in all the wrong places. Now, I, I quoted St. Augustine last week, and I'm going to do it again. African theologian from the late... Uh, 300s, early 400s. He wrote a, like, just a seminal work, if you will. It was groundbreaking in three different categories in religion, philosophy, and literature. If you go to secular institutions, you will study him in all three like branches. It's called the Confessions. You guys are probably familiar with it. In the Confessions and in Augustine's work, he does this thing that like, is groundbreaking both philosophically and in religion and in literature, and everybody reads him, and everybody studies him, and he moves Western thought and idea and philosophy and all this in a certain direction. And the shift he makes, and we talked about this last week, is that he says that the way that humanity moves, the way that they attain something, is this move not from knowledge, which is what the Greek philosophers wanted to argue and contend for, is that it was knowledge that like, brought you to enlightenment, that brought you to this thing. And he says, no, it's not knowledge, it's desire. And now for 1,900 years, humanity has said, yeah, it's probably desire, which is why you can watch a Publix commercial in the next few weeks that will tell you nothing about their sales or their groceries, but will talk about the, what it means to be in family, and it's, this, and it's this feeling, and you're weeping by then, and you're like, shopping really is a pleasure there, isn't it? <laughs> you guys know the commercials I'm talking about. We see this all the time. Now Geico's like making fun of it. There's an insurance commercial where they're like, we're told that, or maybe it's not Geico. It's an insurance commercial where they're like, it's a party. It'll tell people to buy insurance. They get young people. And so they're just having a party about insurance. And it's like, do it. But it's desire. It's our passions. It's our longings that will move us towards something. Not our knowledge. Not what we contain up here. But it's here. It's this thing that propels us. And, and philosophy, non-religion, like, the most uh, important philosophical work a lot of people say in the last 150 years is written by this uh, philosopher by the name of Martin Heigl. And it's being in time. Or Heidegger, not Heigl. Martin Heidegger. And it's being in time. And the thing that's interesting of this, this sets in postmodernism, existentialism, these things that we're living in and swirling in creatively and artistically and the way we function as a society. The interesting thing is, as a secular person, who he was reading and teaching before he does this is Augustine, realizing that it is our passions and our desires that move us and change us. But we get them in all of the wrong places. Augustine coins are, is most famous for being quoted for coining this idea that we have disordered desires. On the opening pages of paragraph one of his book, Confessions, he writes this. He says, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
his argument, his thesis of the whole work that he's doing in this autobiography, philosophical treatise that he does, is this, that we are looking, we're desiring, we're longing to do something, and we will wrestle and long and work and toil and labor until we find rest in God. Because that's what we're created for. We will ever find satisfaction for our desires and our longings. Bear with me. The structure of confessions is very interesting. It's actually the son, the, the pair you guys know well from Jesus. In this, what Augustine is doing in explaining both his own story and the prodigal story is he's saying that it's this circular movement that happens. The son, or Augustine in his own life, starts with a perfect relationship with the father. The son, he's experienced the life in the family. He, he has the things that the, the father can offer to him. And in such, he is experiencing a decent life. But there are confines because he is the son. He is not the father. He longs for his inheritance in the prodigal son. And so he, what he asks the father is, give me my inheritance and let me go be. So he's telling the father, I want the benefits of who you are without the relationship with you. And then he goes on this wandering journey. Augustine, the whole time he's tracking his life doing the same thing. He's saying, I want the benefits of God being in relationship with these things, this desire, this beauty, this longing, this creativity, all the gifts he's given me, and I'm pursuing it. And the further away the prodigal son moves from home, both literally in the story and for Augustine as well, he, he moves away from home, he go, travels all over, he learns. And the further away he gets from where he was created and where he started, the language he uses is that he becomes more and more less of himself. And the same is true of the prodigal son. To use uh, therapy language or, or counseling language, we could say he becomes more and more disintegrated, more and more fragmented, more and more shadow self of what he's supposed to be. The further away from that relationship with God that he's supposed to be, and Augustine you that this of all the you move from God, the more disintegrated and the more fragmented of who you are supposed to be you become. Because you're pursuing things and longing for desires that aren't naturally supposed to be filled by these things that you're pursuing them in. What happens is there's this turn, though. You, you reach a point of destitution or brokenness for some people. Many of you in this room can experience this and know this. And you make a turn back. And now what you long is for relationship with the Father, and you don't care about the benefits. You long just to be back in the home. You long just to have the protection, the safety, the rules and the confines, the structure of being under the father. You just want to be back in the father's house. You know this from the prodigal son. He goes back, says, even the servants have it better. I'll just go be a servant. It's got to be better than the life I have. And what we remember from the prodigal son's story is that the father runs out, meets him, brings him back in, and restores him, reinstates him back to this position of heir and son, and says, no, 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 you are my son, you're welcome back in. And it comes back around that now that you're back in this state of being in relationship with the Father, and your desires have moved you this way. Augustine this jump and say that that's also true of humanity. That this is a, an idea that we see. We start in relationship with the God, with, with Father, God, Yahweh, and we're meant to, to be and to live into our essence of our createdness, to, to give out the Imagio Dei, to find peace in it, to be, to be situated there, to be stable in it. And immediately what happens as we go and we look into the garden, we see that there's this way in which humanity messes this up. Humanity begins to ask for such a way that they could live with the benefits of being the Imagio Dei without actually having the relationship or the confines of that relationship with the Father. And so desire does this thing. It can move us in two directions. It can move us away from God and into fragmentation and disintegration, or it can move us towards God into an integrated self and a wholeness and being and existence that allows us to be the humans that we are supposed to be and created to be. But this act that happened in the garden that pulls humanity out from this plan and this intention of living 
presently and wholly into the Imagio Dei is a violent act, even if it is an innocuous one. There is a subtle violation that happens when Eve begins to look at the fruit and begins to ponder and begins to wonder. And in this moment, as the serpent isolates Eve and as the serpent draws her out, he gets her to start to question something. He gets her to start questioning whether she can trust God and in that starting to question herself, am I enough? Can I really attain the things that I think I'm supposed to attain? Do I really have everything that I think I'm supposed to have? Because as the garden narrative shows us, evil gets introduced into the world and the second that evil comes in its parasitic nature, it introduces shame. It introduces this way in which we begin to question our self-worth, our value, our standing, who we are, what we're meant to be, what we're supposed to do. And shame overwhelms us and it overtakes us. I think you see shame in two ways in the garden. You see shame take place in Eve when she questions whether or not she can trust God and who she's supposed to be. She's going, ah, maybe you're right. Maybe I should eat of that tree. Maybe I should begin to question and wrestle with the knowledge and the understanding. Maybe I should know what is good and what is evil. Maybe I should have this knowledge. Why do I not have it? And she begins to live in such a way that she sees the world in a finite sense. As the world is something meant to be consumed and like obtained. She reaches for it and she takes it. And then shame enters into a second way that as soon as that happens and Adam comes along and he partakes and he's silent. We can get into that another day. They immediately withdraw both from one another in some small sense and they withdraw from God and they hide and they cover themselves. And shame does this thing where it further isolates. Instead of allowing that moment of rupture and failure to turn back to God and say, we messed up, we want to come back to you, they withdraw more both from God and from one another. And they cover themselves and they hide and they don't want to come when God calls them. And we find ourselves living in this world. So we know what happens. The story goes on. They're kicked out of the garden. Thank you, Steinbeck, for giving us the wonderful phrase that we all understand. We now live in a world of Eden. And this is the world we know and are acquainted with. A world of shame. A world of grief. A world of disordered desire, misplaced longings. And we know it all too well. And this story continues immediately. What happens is these people that were created in the garden, that were supposed to image the very essence and being of God, that were supposed to partake in love and relationship and caring for one another and caring for creation, and that were supposed to care for all that God had placed in front of them, and that we're supposed to, in these moments, practice this thing. They were supposed to step into this creative life. God produces beauty and abundance. And he invites his people and his creation into that beauty and abundance with him. And he says, you are to be like me and you are to create and produce and to name. And he gives them very few rules because he wants them to, in those moments, not follow some strict rote like guideline or code. But he wants them to live freely and, and to enjoy all that he has given them and for them to replicate it and reproduce it. And instead, they begin to live in such a way that they consume and they take. And instead of producing beauty and participating in creation, they hold on to and grasp and they wrangle what they think should be theirs. And this happens in chapter 4 of Genesis with Cain and Abel. Immediately, we see this way in which they are frustrated and angry that somebody has something that they thought they should have. And they respond with violence. Cain kills Abel. And this enters into the world, this pattern of death and shame and what I would call grief. We now live in a world where we are acquainted with grief. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning, is this grief that we know and experience, this world that has fallen and broken that we are all too familiar with. I want to say this quickly. Our, our series, as some of you have seen on social media, or you've maybe seen the titles of what we call our sermons, we're calling it The Beauty Behind and then whatever topic we're talking on. 
And I want to say this because what we're saying is that it is not that grief in and of itself is kind of beautiful. It's painful. It's hard. But we think through the redemptive narrative and arc of Jesus Christ that there is in these moments something beautiful that can still be found. And I think grief is one of these things that we often push away. But if we allow ourselves to enter into grief and confront it, then I think that this actually becomes a way for us in our honesty, in our vulnerability, and in our courage and bravery to fight the evil and the shame that has systemically been plaguing human nature since the beginning of time. That as we confront it, as we name it and do something about it, not just acknowledge it and sort of try to hold it at bay, but we enter into it because this is the very act that Jesus does on the cross. Jesus looks at death itself, the shame and the sorrow and the difficulty, the struggle, the pain, the anguish, all of the things on the cross, and he enters into it in such a way that it allows him to swallow it up and to defeat it on its own terms. The cross in Easter weekend is the one thing that evil did not see coming. It did not imagine or understand how that one could enter into it to defeat it. Evil thought it had won on Good Friday. And oftentimes in our lives, evil thinks it has won when shame and grief and hardship, toil and anguish enter into our lives. And if we allow it to, it can. And we can continue to repeat the cycle that humanity has repeated again and again for ages past and ages to come. Or I think there is such a way that we can confront and acknowledge grief in a way that allows us to find victory in the same way that Jesus found victory in the cross. That this is somewhat what it means when Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. There are two types of grief, I think, that we can discuss. One is a worldly grief, and the other is good grief. Anna says that I need to show you this picture of Charlie Brown just so that we all, when we hear good grief, we know, oh, Charlie Brown, our screen's out. It's okay. I was going to show you a picture. There we go. Charlie Brown, good grief, which is a good plug, Mosaic Thanksgiving. Come Thursday, November 17th, 6 p.m. at the Battery. We're going to send signups out later this week. But Charlie Brown, good grief. Okay, so there, we got it out of our system. Everybody can come back. The other way we think about it is of godly grief. When I say grief, another way to think about it, uh, some other terms that you might want to like, put into that placeholder would be anguish, sorrow, brokenness, pain, suffering, hardships. These are different things that as I talk about grief, we're talking about in such a way that we live in this world where we acknowledge and understand that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Grief is a way of talking about a fallen world. It's a, a definition, uh, if I have it, where did it go? I was going to give you a definition that I'd worked on. David, just put it up, there we go. Way to tell the truth of a fallen and broken world. It's Gordon Bowles. Many of you have heard me reference him many times. He spoke at our church before. Our way to tell the truth of a fallen and broken world. And so we acknowledge this. And this is what grief can be for us. And yet, we don't always have this experience of grief. Take, take this idea a little bit further. Let's jump to John 16. And I'll sort of center the remaining few minutes we have here around what Jesus has to say. I'll read one verse and then we'll look at the context of it and then we'll uh, land this plane. In 33, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Chapter 16 in John's gospel is a part of this discipleship sermon that Jesus is giving specifically just to his disciples right before the passion narrative is about to happen. And he's landing his plane as well in this moment. And he's looking at his disciples and he's telling them that there's this, these gifts that he wants to give to them. Primarily, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of his peace. 
And these two things together will allow them to experience this other thing that is his joy. And he's making this argument in chapter 16, uh, Jesus is in John's gospel, that this gift, this joy, is meant to sustain them and give them perseverance through what will be a very difficult world around them. That great grief and trouble will beset them. That they will find difficulties and hardships in the life that is about to And largely, he tells them, because I'm about to dip out and y'all are going to be real confused. And you're going to think, where did he go? But I promise you're going to see me again. And they're, they're in natural disciple fashion. They're like, hey, Jesus, what do you mean? What do you mean you're going to leave, but we'll see you again? And he's like, you guys don't get it, but don't worry. Holy Spirit's coming. And they're like, that's real comforting. We don't know what that means either. That's right. All of us in this broken and fallen world, we understand this. We, we get this sense that there's supposed to be a peace and a joy that is to come to us. We are well acquainted with this idea. We just oftentimes don't have the bravery of the disciples to raise our hand and to say, uh, God, this doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, hey, like we, we don't really get what you're talking about here. What do you mean joy and suffering? What do you mean peace in the midst of grief and hardship? What do you mean comfort in the midst of evil and anguish? This doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus goes on and tries to explain some more. My Holy Spirit's going to come. It's vague enough for him. And then he says, he says some stuff about the Father and how he's revealed the Father. And they're like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Thanks, Jesus. First John's gospel, the disciples say, we get what you're saying. You're speaking clearly now. Jesus responds as only Jesus can. And he says, not so fast. You don't get it. It's cute that you think you get it, but you don't get it. And he looks at him and he says, I, I'm, I am going to give you peace. I am going to help you see the Father and all of this stuff. But here's the reality. The time is coming. In fact, it has come and it is now. That all of you that think you understand what I'm talking about, that think you are my disciples, that think you are my brothers, that you are my followers, my sisters, all of you except for like that are really faithful are going to completely abandon me and I'm going to be left to hang on a cross completely on my own. And all of you except for a couple of women are going to go back to your homes, are going to go back to your jobs, and you're going to do exactly what you were doing before you ever met me and you're going to be confused and you're going to be lost and you are going to be sad. And it's because here's the thing. The promises of my peace and the promises of my Holy Spirit and the gift of my joy, I am promising it to you despite the fact that I know you are going to abandon me. Because it is not out of what you do that I'm going to do this for you. It is out of my love for you is what Jesus is telling them telling you all of this so that you will have peace, both peace in your failures and peace in what is to come. Know that you will fail. You will fall short of what you intend to do in like a few minutes, a couple hours. It's going to be bad. And you're going to think all is lost. But I'm telling you all of this as my promise that there is peace in the midst of this and the hardships, the difficulties, and the grief that is to come. Because I have overcome the world. He's meeting them. He's looking at them and saying, it is despite your failures, this is all true. Knowing that your failures will happen. Not like a caveat of, oh, well, maybe we can work something out. Not a, if you guys do everything like you're supposed to. Y'all are going to royally screw up and it's okay. I will still meet you there. I will still love you. I will still comfort you. And now here's the thing that I think is beautiful because this moment with Jesus and his disciples gets at something that is true of all of us in human nature. And that is that it was Jesus, is Jesus, and always will be Jesus. Jesus did not enter into the world. When the Godhead got together and they decided that we will create man and woman, humanity, we will do this thing in our image that we will release them to, to go and to be fruitful and to multiply, to create and to produce, to live a generative life, a life of reproduction, a life of creation. When we release them to do that, they did not do it thinking that we will only allow this to happen if they do everything exactly like they're supposed to. We will only create if it's beneficial towards us. We will only do this if they are going to do it the way that we think they should. 
in that moment when they create and when they release humanity onto the earth, they do it knowing that failure is going to come. They do it knowing humanity will not be able to live into it. And yet, we are created because God can not not create us. He has to create. His love was so deep, so passionate, that he longed and desired. He's a God that desires us to desire him, a God that longs for us to worship him, to be in relationship with him. He loved us so much that he had to create. He had to produce this thing so that he could share in it with them. Not of his insufficiencies, but out of his abundance, out of his desire to see others create and produce in the same kind of way, to allow God's love and his communion to be something that involves and contains more than what was at the beginning, to create something that is greater than the sum of its parts. And so though he knows failure will come, he still creates. He knows that difficulty is inevitable, that pain is around the corner, and yet he still creates and invites us into it. He knows that the shame will cause us to hide, that our own shortcomings and failures will cause us to cover ourselves up and pull away from him, and yet he creates. He knows that grief will be too heavy for us at times. He knows that we will want to run away from him and from one another. And yet, he is coming. He is coming for us today in the midst of this, in our brokenness, in our grief, in our pain, in our suffering. He's saying, I'm coming for you because I have overcome the world. I have defeated it. And I'm inviting you to participate in this with me. I'm inviting you to experience the joy that I intend for you. But we should take something in 1633 of John's gospel that he promises that anguish, turmoil, pain, struggle, it's not going away. It will still be there. We're still going to have it. But his peace is still promised. His joy is still given. Even if it's not our own failures. Death entered into the world. Brokenness entered into the world. And there is an experience when we encounter it that we grieve. And it's a moment for us to be honest about the world that we live in. It's a moment for us to stop and to recognize and say that this isn't the way that things are supposed to be. And so then we look at this way in which grief confronts us. If there are two griefs in the world, a godly grief and a good grief, 2 Corinthians talks about this. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He names it to him and he says, I wrote to you sad, I'm sorry it made you sad, but now I'm not sad because it caused you to grieve in such a way that you turned back to what God was having for you. I, I don't want you to experience pain, but sometimes pain is necessary for you to be honest about where you're at, where you find yourself, and to acknowledge it. This is what good grief or godly grief does for us. To juxtapose that, worldly grief, what it does is it turns us further into ourselves and further isolates and separates us. As we grieve, we go further into this finite sense of, I need to make sure I get what is mine. This is Gordon Bowles again. I'm borrowing directly from him here. He actually preached a sermon on this called Good Grief six years ago, seven years ago at Mosaic. We were still at the Avon at the time. And he gave this really quick example to juxtapose the two. You long to have a job. You desire to have the job that you want. You apply for it. You go through the whole interview process. You get all the way to the last round, and you're like, yes, I definitely got it. And they call, and they're like, you didn't get the job. Here's what I need you to hear me say. You are meant to grieve that. God wants you to grieve that. He wants you to acknowledge that that is frustrating, that it is painful. God does not say, oh, it's okay, I'll work everything together for you all good. You're good. Don't. No, that's, Christianity has misused that. He doesn't say, oh, it's all fine, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder next time. 
No. God meets you there and he says, that's hard. I'm really sorry. That's painful. I know you put yourself out there. I know you long for that. And worldly grief will respond in two ways, either self-contempt or self-pity. You will either say something like, everybody else always gets what they want and I never have anything good. Why does everybody else get to have the thing that I long for and desire, but like, why does life always just turn out terrible for me? Why, why can't I get what I need? When do I get my break? And it's all about you and it's this turning inward and you actually start to hold people at bay and you're like, I'm not celebrating you because I applied for a job last week and didn't get it, so why would I be happy that you got a new job? And we hold people out here instead of entering into relationship with them. This is what worldly grief, it pulls us further into ourselves where godly grief, very similar, looks and says, man, you know what really sucks is that I applied for a job last week and didn't get it and you got a job this week. That's that frustrates me. But you turn in such a way that you look at God and you say, God, I, I, don't, I don't understand. And you create space for mystery. And you create space for like, not having all the answers. And you look at your friend and you say, I'm really that I don't have a new job, but like, I also know that you getting a new job doesn't mean I can't have what I want because the world isn't a finite like that. And like, I'm going to be happy for you, but I'm going to be happy sad. And that's okay. And you look at God and you say, God, I, I want for my life to have for me. And this is what I want right now. If this isn't what you want for me, will you show me? And you open yourself up to God. You pull yourself out. You see those around you and you move towards God and towards those around you in your sadness and in your pain. And you're honest about it. This is a subtle way to compare the way that worldly grief and godly grief do things to us. And in that... What we're doing with both is we're acknowledging the pain, but one actually confronts the pain and is honest about it in a different kind of way. Because here's the thing, two things that we do with grief. One, we just ignore it, and we really don't know how to grieve at all, or we practice what I would call like a pseudo-grief. When we refuse to enter into the pain and acknowledge it, this would be my response to not getting a job. It's no big deal. I don't want that stupid job anyways. Or I'd be like, yeah, you know what, like I'll be better just doing what I want to do. And I would never actually stop and say, that makes me really sad. That would be my, my attempt. I would ignore it. I would hold it away from me. And I wouldn't allow anyone to come near to me in that moment of vulnerability and honesty. I wouldn't open up in my life in such a way that it would allow someone to come and, and, and to support me and to carry me in that moment. That's eh, no big deal. Everything will work out. I would hold it out here. And I wouldn't allow it to, to really affect me. And I would never be sad about it. Some of us, what we will do is we sort of name it and acknowledge it, but we're not actually confronting it. It's a pseudo-grief is the best phrase I can come up for. And we know this, people that we've walked with. We do this thing where we're like, oh yeah, everything's terrible, but then we never actually are really honest about like where that's coming from and the pain and the pit that it causes. And this is the person that everything's just terrible all the time the Eeyores of the world. I'm like, oh, woe is me. So sad. Everything's terrible. Like the self-contempt. But we don't actually, like those are the Eeyores and the Tiggers, right? Like everything's happy, bounce, bounce, bounce. Everything's sad, terrible. But we don't actually confront the pain and enter into it because entering into pain is really difficult and it's scary and, and it's nerve-wracking and it's like, why would we do this? Why would we go there? And I'm talking about jobs, and this goes way deeper, right? Why would you have that honest conversation with your best friend? Why would you confront the person on that thing? Why would you admit to someone about that deep longing and desire of your heart? Because to open that up and to say it out loud is to just be hurt by it again. There's all of these pains, all of these things, these griefs in the world that we're longing for and desiring and that we want when I talk about longing and desire and wanting things, I, I'm quick to think of, uh, there's this story that I quote all the time, and my mind is going totally blank on the author, but it doesn't matter, and it talks about a thousand deaths. David Foster Wallace, I knew it would come to me. It's his uh, commencement speech to Kenyon College. He talks about this way in which you live life that you're going to die a thousand deaths before you die the big one. I think I have latched onto that, and I'm like, yeah, 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 Jesus, God. 
Please help me learn to die to myself and to you so that I don't have to die those thousand deaths and I'll just die the big one and then I'll get to live on forever in eternity. And I, I've realized in my life as I've gotten older that that is a good desire. That, that is a, 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 I'm getting into the right place, but I'm still a little off. Because what I'm still wanting is to find a way in which I can pursue Jesus and acknowledge grief and acknowledge the pain, but find a way that I can become human in such a way that I can always just be happy. That everything's always kind of perfect. I'm the guy that drives on I-20 and sees the uh, lottery billboard and just spends the next 45 minutes imagining how my life would be so completely perfect if I just won the lottery. I'm prone to that. I'll imagine all these ways. If, if this just happened and everything's perfect, and you know what's terrible about that world that is in my imagination is that it's not reality. It's disconnected from relationship. It's disconnected from the truth of life, which is that struggle and pain and time are what produce good things. Over the pandemic, I got really into making pizza and ice cream, and I sent my recipes to my sister, and she said, why do all of your recipes require 48 plus hours? And I said, because everything that's worth eating takes time to make. Everything that is worth pursuing takes time and struggle. It, take, it asks something of you, and life is no different. To do things right and to do well are to give yourself to something in a way that you know it's not going to happen instantaneously. There's pain and there's struggle, and I want that kind of life too often. But the gift of finding Jesus is not that the thousand deaths cease to exist. Those disappointments, those heartaches, those struggles, those frustrations, they will continue to come. Jesus does not promise his disciples in John 16 that if they have his peace that they will no longer experience difficulty in the world. He promises them that they will come and that they will have his peace. That they will grieve differently. And if they enter into the pain and into the suffering and into the hardships and are honest about it and confront it and meet it head on, he promises that they will find joy in the midst of it. He doesn't promise that they'll go away. And we do this thing in not wanting to enter grief where we not only don't want to enter our own grief, and we're really bad at entering our own grief, we're also really terrible at entering someone else's grief. When someone is struggling, we're too quick to be like, hey, it'll be okay, you want to go do something else now? reality to enter into someone else's pain is to move myself from where I'm comfortable and okay and to experience their pain and to take it on. And the New Testament calls us to do this in Hebrews 13. It says, feel the pain of your brothers and your sisters that are experiencing persecution as you pray for them. Embody it. Take it on yourself. In parenting, I'll go quick here. There's this thing that happens where they actually say that when your kid comes and there's like, like this moment where like they're doing something and they're acting out of natural human desire. They're, they're building, they're creating, they're being loud. This starts to happen around the age five. I know Grant, you and I have talked about this with Phoenix. It's happening with Jameson. He wants to be funny and sometimes it's just not funny. I love you, buddy. And you look at him and, and, and I'm like, dude, don't do that. And I can watch it. Shame over him. Because he's, I was just trying to be funny. I'm like... So they say in parenting, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to name the desire and correct the behavior. But what we oftentimes do is we just correct and it induces shame. We name it. We say, don't do that. That's crazy. Stop it. And, and there's shame and they retreat. They pull back. And then there's a small little thing in them that says the next time they want to be funny or when they're 35 and think it would be really fun to write a stand-up routine. Just throwing that out there, not a personal experience at all. <laughs> and you're afraid to do it because there are all these little times and these moments and places where you did something, you pursued something, you wanted to create something, you wanted to put something out there. And there were little moments where somebody said or did or looked or responded in a certain way that caused you to have shame. And then you tell yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not funny enough, I'm not pretty enough. There's hardships and struggles and pain in this world. This happens. And God looks at us and he says, listen, I know it's going to be hard, but you will have my peace in those moments. 
I will be near to you because I've taken that on myself and I've overcome it. And as you embrace that and as you are honest about it and as you confront it and you enter it in, you can do something. And as you do that for someone else, coming back to where I started with the parenting thing, as you enter into it, when you look at your child and instead of just correcting and kind of moving on, what you do in that moment is you actually almost heap it like more shame back on them. But if you can name the desire and correct the behavior, you actually help them learn where to direct that desire in a better way. And we do the same thing when we do deal with grief with one another. When I can name your grief and I can look at you and I can say, that's really hard. I'm really sorry that life went that way for you. And I can look at you and I can say, that's really painful. And you're right, Christmas is going to be really hard this year and probably for the next 15 to 20 years because any Christmas without your mom is difficult. And I don't try to rush him past it. And I don't try to move him too quickly into the other direction. I just look at him and I say, that's really hard. I'm sorry you've had that struggle. I leave sad, kind of melancholy. But they actually leave lighter because they go, I'm not crazy. Someone entered into that grief next to me. And it's lighter and it's easier for them to move on. But when you look at them and you're kind of like, well, yeah, okay, that, that'll be hard. And then you just go. You actually, they're like, am I crazy for feeling this way? Is my shame, is my, like, am I a weaker human than I thought I was? Like, should I not be sad about this? And you actually put more shame and grief onto them. And we don't want to enter into grief. And yet what the gospel calls us to do is to confront it, to face it, to name it, to acknowledge it, and to enter into it and to sit with it. And not run from it. This is, I know you guys think I use way too many parenting analogies, or maybe I just think I do, but this is why parenting is so beautiful. There's few relationships where you struggle so hard and fail so consistently and you can't get out of it. Every other thing that you fail that much at, you can just be like, I'm out. Parenting does not let you ever stop. You are always a parent and you fail at least 30 times a day. but it does something to you when you stay in it and you acknowledge it and you keep at it and you acknowledge that it's hard. And yes, it is hard, but it is like one of the most beautiful things that you will ever encounter. I don't think that experience is exclusive to parents. Hear me on that. I just think that it's one of the few relationships in life and in our society and in our culture where we actually have to do that. And it happens in a vacuum and it happens really quickly and yet I think that there's a way as believers that we are meant and called to live that we can all experience this outside of parenthood, outside of these relationships. We use marriage as analogies all the time because it's an easy one, but it's the same thing. You don't actually have to be married to experience those growths and those like, advantages of it, those things that happen, the beauty of it. What you have to do is be willing to enter into pain, into relationship and difficulty, and you have to be willing to grieve and acknowledge hardships and brokenness in such a way that allows you to experience it and take that on and to feel it for others and for yourself. And we just as humanity too often pull back from that, hold it at arm's length, don't acknowledge it. And yet the gospel calls us to, and as we do, here's the thing we find a deeper and more pure reliance on who the Lord is. For too many of us, what we attempt to do is we attempt to come to church, to find Christianity, to do all these things, and we attempt to do it in such a way that we think that if we get enough of Jesus, we will fix ourselves and then we won't need him anymore. That if we, if we kind of just can figure out a way to do it ourselves because we don't want to acknowledge grief and pain and suffering because we don't actually want to acknowledge that we need something and that we need a savior and that we need saving. Unless we can acknowledge it just a little bit in such a way that it allows us then to move past it and then on the other side we can go back to just like being in control of ourselves and, and I can fix it, I can do it, I got it. No, Judah, you can't unbutton the buttons. You're going to rip them. But I know you keep saying you can do it, right? We do this to God. We do this in our life. We say, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And everybody's looking around and going, no, you can't. And that's okay. I want to do it with you. And God is saying, I want to do it with you. I'm here for you. I'll enter into it. And it is not that as you enter into the abundant life and as you give up, as you give yourself to this kind of grief, there is a softening and a joy that happens to your heart. There's a way in which you experience others in the world around you that is a lighter and easier way of living and experiencing 
is not that it is without its pain. It's that you experience that pain differently and you see the Lord in it and you see his nearness and you understand his promise when he says to you that I will take your ashes and I will turn it to beauty. That I will make something of this that nothing in your life is wasted. That everything has a meaning and a purpose and it's not because he ordained it and wanted you to suffer. It's that he is so good to you that if you acknowledge it and face it and learn to use it to turn to him, that in that moment what he will do is he will take that and he will allow himself to come near to you. And you will allow yourself to be open and to come near to him and you will soften and you will see a joy and a peace and a hope and a goodness in life that is missed if all you try to do all the time is to refuse to acknowledge and see the pain and the difficulty and the grief in the world around you. But as you are honest, as you look to it, it softens you in such a way that allows your life to be opened up and you rely more on who God is, not less. You go further, deeper into the crevasse. You, you find there, in that space, that there's more life for you, that there's joy and there's peace because that is what God promised you and he is the source of it. And you find that there is rest because you can only rest in him. And if you have more of him, you have more of what he offers. And that relationship sits. This is what we celebrate at communion every Sunday. As the band comes up, you're invited to come and to take a piece of the bread and the cup to hold on to those elements and to return back to your seat and to hold them in your hand. In this moment, you are invited to come and to receive of this, the gifts that God offers you, the peace that he offers you, the kindness, the joy that he offers you. You're invited to be honest and open and this is what I would say, societally, all this is true that if we don't know how to grieve, we don't know how to be honest, we don't know how to confront and to do these things, like we don't know how to lament, we don't know how to name, and there's a moment when you come to the table that it is joyous and it is celebratory, but it's also a moment of, of honesty, of lamenting, of this is not the way it's supposed to be, God. We confess our sins before we take the elements. And we say, I, I, there are roles I have played in this. There's a sadness that can come to the table too. And that's okay. And so I invite you to come and to be honest in this moment. To, to, to grieve as you need to grieve. To be honest as you need to be honest. But then turn to the Lord and allow it to hold your head up. And to see him present and in the midst of of your struggles, difficulties, and brokenness, and allow him to minister to you in this moment and to receive that gift, the peace and the joy that is given to you as the cross is our joy. 21st century Americans, like that, it was a stumbling block to the Greeks and to the Jews. It's, it's a stumbling block to us too of how that could be joy. Yeah, but... Don't we know? And there's all these caveats, but he's saying, it's come, pick up your cross, follow me, because in the cross is joy. And so we're coming and receiving that gift in this moment, coming and receiving these elements in the presence of God, ministering to you in the midst of a hard and broken world, because it is hard to be human is to know pain and suffering, to be human is to know disappointment, to know shame. And Jesus is saying, I see you. I know it too. I know I'm well acquainted. And come and experience joy and my goodness in the midst of it. Not in spite of it. Not, we're not trading anything in here. It's not if you come here and magically your grief's going to go away. saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to sit with you in the middle of it. And teach you in such a way to sit in it yourself. And then learn to then go and sit with other people in the way that I would. Be comfortable in allowing yourself to be sad, to grieve, because it's an honest moment before the Lord. So I invite you to come and to receive the bread and the cup as you long and desire to partake in this life that God would have for you and to draw near to Jesus. Hold on to those elements and I'll come back up and lead us in the taking. And so come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.